traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. familiar with the original run of the British television show Doctor Who, you might recall the seventh Doctor, played by Sylvester McCoy in the story Ghostlight, saying the line, I loathe bus stations, terrible places, full of lost luggage and lost souls. You know, I think there's some truth in that, especially if you've ever been at a bus station in the small hours where... They're often inhabited by people that you'd never really see at any other time. They they exist in the times when we're usually sleeping. They are lost souls just looking for somewhere with some light and shelter. I know there are a few listeners out there from my home city who may know what I mean about our particular bus station in the city centre. I think bus stations at night especially exist in a kind of strange limbo. Everyone's either coming from somewhere or going somewhere and nobody really wants to be there. You you can't really get comfortable. You're usually tired but you can't sleep. So you're in this kind of limbo too. You're just really stalled until that bus finally turns up to take you somewhere where you can carry on living your life again. A perfect place for the Twilight Zone I think and... Add to that some elements from what I think is quite a fascinating piece of folklore that I'll talk about later, and you have one of my personal favourites, Mirror Image. The bus to Cortland. What about her? Well, it was due a half an hour ago. Yep, half hour ago. When will it be in? Hard to say. Been raining hard, road slick, maybe a bridge or two out. That'll play hard with the schedule. Well, when do you think it will be in? She'll be in when she'll be in, that's all. I told you that the last time you asked, miss. The last time I asked? The last time I asked was right now. Look, all I want from you is a civil answer. You're getting a civil answer. Trouble is, every ten minutes you're up here requiring one. But this is the first time I've been up here. The very first time. Millicent Barnes, age 25. Young woman waiting for a bus on a rainy November night. Not a very imaginative type is Miss Barnes, not given to undue anxiety or fears, or for that matter, even the most temporal flights of fancy. Like most young career women, she has a generic classification as a, quote, girl with a head on her shoulders, end of quote. All of which is mentioned now because in just a moment, the head on Miss Barnes's shoulders will be put to a test. Circumstances will assault her sense of reality, and a chain of nightmares will put her sanity on a block. 
Millicent Barnes, who in one minute will wonder if she's going mad. First broadcast on the 26th of February 1960, written by Rod Serling and directed by our old friend John Brom. Now I have to warn you up front that there isn't a great deal of trivia for this one, but you know, as ever, we'll we'll try our best and see how we get on. And I also think in terms of the story, there's not really a great deal to actually commentate on because, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but it is quite a simple story. It follows quite a straightforward path and the beauty of it is the the way it melds all these elements together into this deceivingly simple piece of uh, entertainment. Now the idea for this episode comes from an encounter at an airport that Rod Serling had. But depending on where you read it, there are actually different versions of the story. Now if you look in the Twilight Zone companion, the way Serling describes it there is I was at an airport in London. I was sitting there very quietly with my top coat in hand and a briefcase at my feet. And I looked up and across the room and there stood a man five foot six, my identical height, wearing the identical top coat with a briefcase of identical cowhide. And I kept staring and staring with this funny ice cold feeling that if he turns round and it's me, what will I do? Well, Point of fact, he did turn round, and he was ten years younger and far more attractive. But this did leave its imprint sufficiently to write a story about it. Now, if you look at the book Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grams Jr., the way it's written there is, Sailing says, I got this idea during a publicity tour last fall. I was sitting in a Cleveland, Ohio airport, when I noticed a person walking past me carrying a bag very similar to my own, I looked up and saw the person from the back. The build, the back of the head, etc. were identical to my own. And while I never did see who the unlucky guy was, it provided a springboard to an idea, whereby a woman keeps seeing evidence of a twin to herself and ultimately seeing herself. Now that was originally an interview that he did for the TV Guide. But in a 1960 issue of the Louisville Courier Journal, he tells it this way. Last summer I was at the Cleveland airport when I saw a bag at the claim station which looked much like my own. A man claimed it and I saw him only from behind. He was rather short, dark haired and looked much like me. I said, gosh, what would it be like to see myself walk up and claim my own luggage while I sat at an airport? From that came one of our stories in which a woman met herself face to face. So that's quite a curious thing, three different takes on what inspired the episode, all from Rod Sailing himself, which is uh, very strange. But anyway, when we meet our leading character, Millicent Barnes, it's a, it's a dark rainy night and she's sitting in a bus station all alone, pretty much buffed for a cleaner, a handful of other passengers and the crotchety old man at the ticket counter. Now the ticket agent is played by Joe Hamilton. There's not really much to say about him, you know, he was a a working actor and he gives a decent enough performance for the role, you know, I think later on at times he does kind of veer towards maybe overplaying it slightly, but I don't know, maybe that's just me. But you know, he, he fills this role of the crabby old guy well enough and He would have been about 60 or 61 when he made this, and sadly he only actually lived till he was 65. So while they're talking, there's this whole sequence with the bag where it will 
you know, she sees a bag behind the counter that looks like hers. She looks for her own bag, but it's gone, you know, that kind of thing. This whole little routine. Now, the bag actually disappearing from behind her was done in camera by simply just using a piece of string that would yank the bag off the set when, when needed. Are you all right, miss? Yes, of course I'm all right. I'm perfectly all right. Why, don't I look all right? You look fine. You look just fine. It's just that when you were in here before... Before? What do you mean, before? I've never been in here before. Honey, you were just in here a few minutes ago. Me? I've never been in here before. So while she's in the ladies' room, we have this great reveal where she looks into the mirror and she sees herself sitting on the bench behind her and when she does eventually go out into the station again the other hair has gone but her bag is back it's about now that the creeping kind of doubt of her own insanity starts to come into play and she does start to wonder whether she's cracking up what's the matter with me what on earth is the matter with me What's happening? Delusions. That's what they are. They're delusions. I must be sick. I must be running a fever. I'm not even warm. I don't have any fever. No fever at all. Excuse me, miss. Yes. It's when she's going through this in her mind that she meets a man. He can obviously see she's in distress and he comes to offer assistance. And it's a welcome piece of respite for her, something to grab onto in, against the, you know, the madness that's kind of inflicting itself on her. Forgive me, miss, you're not ill, are you? What's wrong with me? I, I really don't. Was well, there something I can do? I don't know. It, it's just that all sorts of queer things have been happening to me. I, I've been seeing things. Seeing things? What sort of things? I'm not sure I should tell you. You probably want to move to another part of the room or... Call the police or an ambulance or something. Why don't you tell me? Maybe I can help. Incidentally, my name is Grinstead. Paul Grinstead. I'm from Binghamton. Now, Paul's played by Martin Milner, and he would have been about 30 at the time. A very baby-faced actor. He does seem to have this very natural inner goodness to him, I think. He's a very good choice for a good Samaritan. He's... Just the kind of guy you would want to be there to lend comfort and support. Except maybe the part when he gets uh, taken away by the police. But, you know, I guess he was trying to do the right thing. Now, apparently when Martin Milner was in the army in the early 50s, him and another actor by the name of David Jensen encouraged a swimming instructor at the base where they were to go into acting too. And that swimming instructor's name was Clint Eastwood. Milner went on to to be a face that you would, you know, see popping up a lot in in television shows, especially in the 80s, you know, things like Airwolf, MacGyver, Murder, She Rose, that kind of thing. I saw my 
myself, sitting right here on this bench. It's delusions. Yes. Yes, that's what it must be, delusions, some sort of delusions. But I'm not sick. I, I don't have a temperature. I'm not running a fever. But it's not just seeing things that don't exist. Why did that man and that woman say they'd seen me before? I don't know. This one's tough to figure out. Now, obviously, Millicent is getting more distraught by the minute, and with good reason, this is... This is one of those times that Sailing often spoke about, saying, you know, the unexplained intruding on someone's life. But the worst part is yet to come. Buster Cortland, Syracuse, Buffalo, now arriving. She looks up and she sees herself on the bus with this sly smile on her face. And she passes out on a bench. And eventually when she wakes up, she has this thought. I've been thinking about something. It's very odd, but I've been remembering. Remembering what? About something I read or heard about a long time ago. About different planes of existence. worlds that exist side by side and and each of us has a counterpart in this world and and sometimes through through some freak through something unexplainable this counterpart after the two worlds converge comes into our world and and in order to survive it, it has to take over take over Move us out so that it can live. I think it's a good place to stop and talk about what may or may not be happening here. Now, Millicent's explanation is this half-haired, half-red kind of recollection whereby other dimensions might be bleeding into our own. When someone comes through, then they will replace whoever's in our dimension. So it's quite a science fiction type scenario, but you know, that's just her take on it. I think what the Twilight Zone was so good at was giving you the unexplained, but not making you feel cheated when they didn't actually explain it. When they're done right, you don't feel like it's a hole in the story. It's something that enhances the strangeness of the situation. In less skilled hands, it can be, you know, a terrible thing, but Sailing was obviously the master of it. So we have her take, but who's to say whether that's right or not? It could be an alien invasion, it could be any number of things. What she's seen is her doppelganger, her double. The roots of the doppelganger is, I think, more of a supernatural kind of folklore thing than science fiction. But I'm going to come back to that later. But when she starts coming out with all this stuff, all it does is make Paul thinks that she's, that she's crazy. So he calls the police. And when the cops conveniently turn up and take her away, I guess you could say it is a, a bit sudden. They don't even ask any questions. There's no formalities or anything like that. They just stop the car and take her away. I guess we'll forgive that because they've spent most of the running time building up this tension, this strangeness. 
you know, they needed to get Millicent out of the way so that they could finish up the story with Paul. So I don't think it would really have helped to have the cops turn up and have that to be any extended kind of sequence with them. So, you know, it's maybe slightly hokey, but I think they did the right thing. So the camera zooms in on that suitcase and we know what's coming next. Paul then sees his own doppelganger and as he exits the station he sees him running away with a smile on his face. So there are no answers, just this this chilling final scene where Paul sees his doppelganger running away. Now, I'll make no bones about it, I, I adore this episode. I think it embodies everything I love about a certain type of Twilight Zone. You know, by now in the podcast we've explored quite a few different types of episodes and I think it's fair to say that I don't think there's a particularly typical kind of story. You could probably sit down and take time to categorise them maybe, but some are very sentimental, some are magical, and some like this bring that kind of strangeness just crashing into people's lives. I think these are the ones that people generally hold up as typical Twilight Zone, even if it's not quite true. Like I say, I think the choice of location is inspired, the the quietness, the, the subdued performances that take place in it. If another dimension was going to bleed into our own, then it is kind of fitting that these kind of limbo places, these nondescript places, that it would happen there, you know. So the performances are quite subdued, they are quite quiet, and I think that only amplifies the moments of panic when things really start to get strange. There's there's little in the way of music too, just the sound of the rain in the background with the occasional music cue to, to highlight some strange occurrence. I think it's a it's a wonderful collision of location and the device that they use. I think it's just perfect personally and and I've purposely left until last some discussion on doppelgangers themselves because I am aware that like I said earlier this is a little bit of a light podcast purely because there isn't much trivia and and because of what the story is but but I do find this particular piece of folklore quite interesting so I'm going to talk about that quite a bit. Now I'm taking all this information from a site called paranormal.about.com It's not somewhere that I visit regularly myself, but I just looked it up for the purposes of this. Now, I'm going to read out a couple of passages from that site. So all credit to them, this is not my work. But it it really brings home the, the very creepy nature, I think, of the doppelganger in folklore. Now what it says is doppelganger is German for double walker. A shadow self that is thought to accompany every person. Traditionally, it's said that only the owner of the doppelganger can see this phantom self and that it can be a harbinger of death. Occasionally, however, a doppelganger can be seen by a person's friends or family, resulting in quite a bit of confusion. Now, on the site, they have this fascinating account of a doppelganger occurrence that happened to a lady by the name of Emily Sagi. And I'm going to read you parts of that passage. It goes like this. One of the most fascinating reports of a doppelganger comes from American writer Robert Dale Owen, who was told the story by Julie von Guldenstubb, the second daughter of the 
Baron von Guldenstubb. In 1845, when von Guldenstubb was 13, she attended an exclusive girls' school near Walmart in what is now Latvia. One of her teachers was a 32-year-old French woman named Emily Sagi, and although the school's administration was quite pleased with Sagi's performance, she soon became the object of rumour and odd speculation. Sagi, it seemed, had a double that would appear and disappear in full view of the students. In the middle of class one day, while Sagi was writing on the blackboard, her exact double appeared beside her. The doppelganger precisely copied the teacher's every move as she wrote, except that it did not hold any chalk. The event was witnessed by 13 students in the classroom. A similar incident was reported at dinner one evening when Sagi's doppelganger was seen standing behind her, mimicking the movements of her eating, although held no utensils. The doppelganger did not always echo her movements, however. On several occasions, Sagi would be seen in one part of the school when it was known that she was in another at that time. The most astounding instance of this took place in full view of the entire student body 42 students on a summer day in 1846. The girls were all assembled in the school hall for their sewing and embroidery lessons. As they sat at the long tables working, they could clearly see Sagi in the school's garden gathering flowers. Another teacher was supervising the children. When this teacher left the room to talk to the headmistress, Sagi's doppelganger appeared in her chair while the real Sagi could still be seen in the garden. The students noted that Sagi's movements in the garden looked tired, while the doppelganger sat motionless. Two brave girls approached the phantom and tried to touch it, but felt an odd resistance in the air surrounding her. One girl actually stepped between the teacher's chair and the table, passing right through the apparition, which remained motionless. It then slowly vanished. Sagi claimed never to have seen the doppelganger herself, but said that whenever it was said to appear, she felt drained and fatigued. Her physical colour even seemed to pale at those times. I have to say, I, I find this piece of folklore absolutely fascinating, and I don't know why, but it does actually genuinely chill me. The, the very thought that you could see yourself and when that other you looks back they don't look back at you with the same look of surprise and confusion that's obviously going to be on your face but with a smile filled with malevolence that tells you instantly that this isn't some cosmic mishap that you will both try and figure out this is an attack on you and your identity and your life <laughs> Obscure a metaphysical explanation to cover a phenomena. Reasons dredged out of the shadows to explain away that which cannot be explained. Call it parallel planes or just insanity. Whatever it is, you find it in the Twilight Zone. So there you go. Again, I must apologize for this episode. I, Like I say, although I adore it, you know, completely... It just felt like there wasn't much to actually hang the episode on, if you like. So, you know, 
that's what it, that's the way it's going to be sometimes there are so many different types of episodes it's not always going to be easy to put these things together a few things to mention i have i have some itunes reviews that i am as always very thankful for on july 14th fairballs in the us says great insight into the show and it brings back so many memories keep going well i will thank you and also another another great review by someone by the name of Fast Shoes in the US as well. Nice, nice, very touching review that, and I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And another one over in the UK from the Mahoney. Nice short little, short and sweet review there. That's all it needs to be. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. So a few bits of housekeeping. As ever, I am currently the the admin on the official Twilight Zone forum over at Cult Labs, and you can you can find a link to that at our website, thetwilightzonenetwork.com. So you know, I always like it when someone from the podcast makes themselves known in the forum. I, I think that's great to be able to actually you know converse about the Twilight Zone instead of just you know sending these thoughts out there. I think that's fantastic. So you know, if you do have a bit of time and you enjoy posting in forums, then come and join us and give us a shot. As always, at the website, the Twilight Zone Network is Chris Barnes' excellent Night Gallery podcast. Now. Chris has a, a lot more of a difficult job on his hands with the Night Gallery because there's not many sources of information about that show, but he always manages to pull it together into a really entertaining podcast, so I think you'll enjoy it. And, of course, we also have Suspense, Dimension X, and I've started to put up a couple of episodes of Tales of Tomorrow. That's going to be more of an occasional thing, I think, because it takes quite a while to to do that, but... You know, there's no rush here, but if you go to the website, you can see, you can actually watch those episodes of Tales of Tomorrow. Now, Tales of Tomorrow, you could say, is a forerunner of the Twilight Zone. It was in the early 50s, and there was some really big names in it. So, you know, it's it's an interesting watch, and I, I'd recommend checking that out. Now, also at the site, we have had our first piece of fiction submitted. Now, what this is, is I know there's a lot of very creative people out there, and and what we'd like to do is actually publish some of the short stories that might be in the spirit, let's say, of the Twilight Zone or the Night Gallery. And we had a submission from a gentleman by the name of Christian A. Larson, and it was a story called A Factor of X, very much in the Twilight Zone mold, and a great little story. And hopefully now that Christian's submission is up there, other people will follow suit. So go over there, check it out, and, you know, if you're a budding writer and you've got a story that you think we might want to publish, then contact us at admin at thetwilightzonenetwork.com and we'll get back to you. And I'd also like to say, you know, we we are gradually building up content on the site, but, you know, it's a slow process. There aren't enough hours in the day, really. But if you feel you might want to contribute to the site in some way, then... Again, let's talk about it, you know, it could be it could be in any number of ways. So, you know, if you've got any ideas, then email admin at the twilightzonenetwork.com and we'll we'll talk them over and see what we can do. And um, we're also on Facebook. Facebook.com slash the Twilight Zone Network. And we're also on Twitter, Twilight Zone Net. Okay, well that's all from me. But the episode that we'll be discussing next time, it's one of the big ones. It's one of the heavy hitters of the whole show. 
you know, I'd really like to maybe get some feedback on this one. If uh, if anyone wants to add their words to to the show, you can either record me a an MP3 clip or send me an email. You know, with with your thoughts on the episode that we'll be discussing. And it is, of course, the monsters are due on Maple Street, one of the big ones. So email me at tom at the Twilight Zone Network dot com if you have any feedback about the monsters are due on Maple Street. Just to help me out, if you could put in in the header submitted for your approval, then I'll know that it's feedback for the show. Okay, well that's all from me, and uh, I'll see you next time in the Twilight Zone. Bye-bye.